Hi, Steph. Hey, how are you doing? I'm very well. I'm just about to do an interview with Zoe, who's here, who's about to interview me on five objects that provoke, inspire, and something. Remember, do what? <laughs> Means something to you. Means something to me. I love you. I love the fact you're about to interview on five objects. You wait till you hear what they are. I shudder to think. My name is Zoe Laughlin and this is The Things That Make Us, a podcast about people and the objects that have shaped them. This week my guest is Henry Dimbleby, chef, writer and co-founder of the fast food chain Leon. Now there's a little bit of what some might consider to be adult conversation in this interview. For example, the word penis is used. So if me just saying that word now has sent you into a flap, this might not be the episode for you. So yeah, what, what I realised thinking through the objects and we were talking about them to my wife as well, was that I'm actually not really much of an objects person. Things uh, don't really mean much to me. Um, I've never been very interested in clothes. Our car is kind of a smashed up old thing full of raisins. Uh, I don't take care of things, you know. So I'm really kind of a a sentimentalist. Uh, Emotions and experiences, if you were to have asked me pick five moments that have been really important to you, I would have had a massive list. But often objects can represent that moment as well. Yes, but I think the thing is, if you... So, you know, one of the, an example was I thought of, you know, I thought one of the strongest memories I have as a child was the smell of my father's cigar smoke. And in fact, going to boarding school and being separated from the family, if I was at school and someone was coming round the corner, I got a whiff of the cigar smoke first. My heart would leap as if my dad was going to come around the corner. So I thought, well, do I bring a cigar? But actually, that's not the object. That's using the object as a cipher for something else. Whereas I think a lot of people, or other people, the objects themselves are very important to them. And actually, with the exception of one of the choices today, I would say everything here that you see in front of you, or, or if everything but the one thing that where the object is important you see in front of you, is more of a cipher for something else than the object itself being important. Right, so what is your first thing? So, on the topic of uh, mawkishness and sentimentality, uh, my first thing is these little casts oh. of my children's feet. George, Johnny and Dory, which were cast by my uncle just after they were born. I actually, this is ridiculously sentimental, but uh, one of the, I used to be very, um, before I had children, you know, I think a lot of people are very unsentimental about children. And now I am sentimental to a ridiculous degree. And actually, in a rather dark way, whenever I see a, uh, a story about a child dying, I find it unbelievably uh, moving. And again, completely self-centered mawkishness. But when I see these feet, I kind of imagine the children being gone and this being the only thing I have left of them. Can I cup one in my yeah, hand, like can. a treasure? <laughs> um, oh my word. You've got, those are Johnny's you've got there. You, there's um, a family toe, look at these little toes. Yeah, <laughs> there is a family toe, I'm not sure that's mine or whether that's my wife's, mine or my wife's. My uncle does it by, he makes a gel out of seaweed 
which he paints onto the foot, which gives you, you know, you can see every single little crevice mm. and, uh, and wrinkle, which obviously in children's feet, they have all these, you know, if you look around the ankle, this kind of beautiful folded little, little wrinkles. Then he takes that off and he pours plaster into it. And then round the plaster, he creates a mould and then he pours bronze into it. So it's quite a complicated process. And Does they're obviously he have very a foundry heavy. at home? Yeah, he's a sculptor. Yeah. So he, he, he has... A, well, they, they get cast in a foundry, but he does all the moulds, you know. He has a lovely studio in North Devon. He started off doing more casts of faces. Uh, and the issue is with the face is that your eyes are closed. Um, well, just like, like a death mask. It's like a death mask, yeah. exactly. So it doesn't... For me, it doesn't really work. It, it, they're a bit spooky, whereas there's something incredible... The way that, like, the little toes curled in... There's something full of life about these, even though they're just disembodied feet. So where do you keep them? So these are on the bookshelf in the, um, in the TV room. I think they, they get strokes a lot, but only by two of us. But I, I imagine that in a few years' time, they'll be like you know, one of those statues in a church in France where they've been worn down. There'll be a little kind of um, shiny bit on the top of the foot from where we stroke them. My parents have a, a bust, a full bronze bust of my sister, because she got sort of spotted by a sculpture as a great beauty to be captured. How does that make you feel? <laughs> I was fine with it, but my <laughs> mum has a residual guilt that she doesn't have a bronze of me. <laughs> well, it's funny, we were, t- we were chatting, um, I mean, kind of, again, a very idyllic scene. There's, a, there's an extraordinary park, I think it's called Shot Tower Park down in West London, which is long and oblong, it's just a little stream, really clean stream, and there was a little jetty where you can sit and we were down with Mima's dad and her mum and all of our kids and her sister um, and her dad's quite ill and was sitting on a little fold-out chair and all the kids were paddling around the stream and catching sticklebacks it was like something from the 50s and um, we were talking about you know siblings and how you see yourself and how you see each other and Mima said something like well of course you know Hattie's always been the beautiful one and it was clear that this was something that had only ever lived in Mima's mind. I heard all of that had never been spoken about, but all her life she had thought Hattie's the beautiful one. And you wonder, you know, obviously you look at these feet and they're all equally beautiful, but I guess maybe that's what we all think about our siblings, that they're the... I've got two sisters, so it was always... Um, so what one were you? Uh, well, that was the, the idea. So it was uh, Liza's the eldest, Kate's the youngest, and I'm the only boy, so everyone was special. Now, with our three, we've got a problem, because you've got George, who's the eldest, Dory, the girl, is the youngest, and Johnny, the middle one, is, uh, is the middle one. So we're trying to work out what, what, how we'll, how we'll uh, brand him as the special one. <laughs> <laughs> He'll obviously be the one who goes on to, be, you know, to rule the world. Um, Your surname, right? I mean, that is a dynasty in many respects. Do you feel it's a pleasure or a pain that that brings? I really don't, um, I think it's like, um, you know, what's it like to have uh, your dad as your dad? It's like, well, he's my dad. It's like mm. something you've always um, been brought up with. I also think, I mean, because I haven't gone into his profession, I don't, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, it's a bit weird having a dad who's recognised in the street, particularly as he's got older now, you know, doing question time. He's much, much more recognised than he was when we were kids. And if you walk, if you happen to be walking, 20 paces behind him, you catch all sorts of juicy snippets of gossip about <laughs> people who like him or don't like him. But also, remember, my mother, you know, is actually, um, for me, going into food, you know, Jocelyn will be doing all her cookbooks, you know, she was, 
I think she was the first person to sell a million plus cookbooks, or maybe Elizabeth Davis, but without television. I mean, she was selling millions of cookbooks before television. In the, in the 80s, Jocelyn Dimbleby dinner parties were kind of the dinner party. And so in some ways, I feel her um, shadow falling more strongly over than my father's. Although she's brilliant, she's always coming into the restaurants and sending me texts saying, this is good, change this. I wasn't sure about this, this was great. It's brilliant. And actually, we have with my mother, you know, I think mother-son communication is often limited. And uh, the food gives us a fantastic opportunity to talk. And it's basically the, the medium in which we communicate almost entirely. So, what is your second thing? So, my second thing, and I'm going to keep it in the family, is uh, my wife's breasts. Now, um, I talked to Mima about this, whether this was an appropriate thing <laughs> to, to discuss in public. And she pointed out that it wasn't particularly feminist. I was literally objectifying her breasts by choosing them as an object. But actually, as a physical thing, they probably, mean, rather than a mental thing, they probably mean more to me than, than almost anything. They were the first object that came to mind for a few reasons. You know, they've gone through transition. When, when, when we first met at Leon, we met at the opening of Leon at the party, and she thought I was married. And apparently I um, was not looking at her face when I was talking to her. And she thought, this naughty man who's married is not looking at my face. But also apparently thought, what a shame, he's married. And so from an aesthetic point of view, I was originally entranced by them. But then obviously they go on to mean so much more than that. You know, as you have children, they, they, they grow into these amazing things that spray milk great distances and then nourish your children. They're just kind of the most miraculous thing. And I still just get enormous pleasure. Mima turned up for dinner last night and her breasts were amazing. It's kind of very emotional. They, they, they are a big part of her. A big part of that, <laughs> literally. Um, and they, they mean a lot. We've been married. We're going to be married for 10 years this, this um, December, November. And uh, other than her putting up with all of my incredible, ir- irritable, irritating habits and her good humour and her very loud laugh uh, and all the emotional stuff, I'd say that the, her breasts are uh, an object that inspires, provokes... Um, I can't remember and the delights, other words. Yeah. And delights me, yes, in equal measure. How do they provoke you? Well, no, <laughs> I, don't you want, I don't think you want to know. <laughs> I can imagine. But uh, so I'm not sure. I think that I've gone beyond, you know, I think I'm not objectifying them. It's feminist to be able to talk about her breasts in this way. Do you look forward to the next 10 years of her breasts? Definitely. So to speak, the future Absolutely. developments. Absolutely. Uh, me and her breasts on our journey together. Yeah. Sitting on, sitting next to each other on on deck chairs when we're ninety. Do they have a character? Um, one is slightly different size from the other. You know, they're not completely symmetrical. But I, I wouldn't say I kind of think about. I don't have, I don't feel different emotions towards the left breast than I do towards the right breast. Um, they're very much a whole. That's why I'm, I, you know, I was asking if I was allowed to choose them as one object and whether they had to be two. <laughs> well, first of all, we decided I had to discuss whether they were an object or not, obviously, which comes with all sorts of political uh, connotations. And then was it one or was it two? And it's definitely, and then Mima says, is it an object because it's connected to something else? But they definitely are, without a doubt, they're the physical thing, physical manifestation of something that means more to me than anything else. Other than that, maybe had glasses. Maybe her glasses. 
But in glasses, you know, every two years you might have a change of frame. But that's a... yeah, but that's the thing. So I get very very upset when she changes her glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, you know, she'll come back in with a new pair. Oh my God, you've got a trendy pair of glasses. What is this fashion? What was wrong with the old ones? I like the old ones. So obviously, that kind of face furniture it means much more to you than you think it does because it's part of someone you see it every day there's a certain there's an argument to be made that when you're in a long relationship it's selfish of someone to choose their own glasses because they're not the person who has to look at them every day you know i think there should be some kind of level at which um, <laughs> i'm allowed to have a say in the glasses but that's not been that's not been granted to me mima's whole family walk around nude all the time not in front of me i hate to around, but in front of each other and every uh, here in our house we're all naked you know they all the time. Mime is very keen on the children seeing proper bodies rather than perfect bodies. And actually, a lot of the time, the only thing I see her wearing, she's always she's just in her glasses. That's it. <laughs> Walk around the house. Her dad used to write sitting on a wicker chair, naked. He's a writer. And one of Mime's strongest childhood memories, really strong childhood memories, was him having been writing, standing out, standing up from the chair to go and get a cup of tea or something and the pattern of the little wicker octagons on his buttocks. <laughs> she says that's one of her strongest memories, the mark of the wicker chair. Do you feel a sense of ownership over the breasts then? No, definitely not. Although, I mean, you kind of, you, you, to own something, I think, you have to, you know, what does it mean to own something? It means that you have to, that it's yours to sell, that it's yours to access whenever you want it. They're definitely, definitely her breasts. Um, I'm just very lucky that, um, She's generous with them. But I don't feel ownership at all, no. I, mean, I think that if you look right back to ancient times and sexual iconography, you know, the lingam, the penis, was always you know, the man's only, only recognised sexual thing was the lingam, whereas there was a lot of confusion about whether it was the uni, the, the vagina or the breasts. And I think the breasts are kind of, I think you can, they're mystical, they're magic. They're the visual representation of the womb, of, the, of, all, of all of that, earth mother reproductive thing that that women have and that we are sadly not party to were you plus they're fun you know so it's so like you... magical plus fun <laughs> so were you always a breast man so to speak or was uh, her breasts a sort of seminal turning point in no i've always chicken thighs and women's breasts have always been you know the, my choice but I didn't realize I mean until I was thinking about these objects I didn't even realize quite how much they meant to me until we were talking about what objects meant something to me and I was going through all of these things and they just came kept coming back and back and back and you know we thought well is it just a joke or is it actually something that's important and actually if you think about your mind space if you think about you know what what provokes uh, inspires etc and you think about what you think about and what drives your behavior I would say they're very definitely they've established a position above and beyond the general breasts, they're definitely, it's mimer's breasts, not just a love of breasts that, that inspires and provokes. I mean, as a part of the body and thinking of them in terms of an object, they are a thing that gets removed, not mm. every day, but yes. for someone somewhere it is every day. Yes, so you know, am I surgeon. creating a problem for the future by um, putting them up on a pedestal like this? As a woman with breasts, you know you're physically attached to them and then there's a psychological attachment and a cultural attachment and these sorts of things. But you also have a part of you which is aware that they may, no, you may not be, be with not them be for forever. life. Yeah. Not be there forever. Yeah. So do you think it's wrong, do you think it's irritating to choose breasts as an object? Do you think I actually 
However, I've uh, tried to rationalise that this is an acceptable choice. It's actually sexist and objective. I think it is an acceptable choice, but because it does <laughs> highlight that exact that issue, issue yeah. that they aren't necessarily... You don't think to yourself, oh, my left leg, I might lose that one day, and that be, might be psychologically something I might be prepared for. That, then yeah. that happens, that's a trauma and yeah. an accident rather than something yeah, that's like very Men don't use their penises very often. I mean, it's interesting, when I was talking, I was talking to a friend about one of the things I was thinking of choosing as an object was um, George's umbilical cord, which we still have. Um, but actually I decided not to because I don't really think about it that much. It was very much representing something else. And he said, oh, I've still got my foreskin in formaldehyde. <laughs> I, I had it cut off at 32 because I broke it. And I got it in formaldehyde somewhere. And, you know, that's just nothing. It's just a piece of something. Whereas if you lost a breast, there's, there is, you know, there is a lot of... I mean, it would be like the equivalent for a man would be losing a, their penis, I guess. I mean, I do think that flaws, you can learn to love flaws. So whether they were, so in terms of, when I say flaws, I mean things that are different. So if they were completely gone and she were flat-chested with scars, I like to think that she wouldn't be any less to me and that that would be kind of fascinating and you'd learn to love that. But you don't really know, do you? I certainly wouldn't. I mean, I thought... I the idea of just having, it's a very odd idea, the idea of having, uh, you can understand surgical replacements. The idea of just wearing a bra with heavy things in, if you think about it, it's weird, isn't it? Really bizarre. I mean, is that for the woman because of the weight and feeling like not being reminded every day that they're not there? Or is it because for men to make them feel, I don't know, it's kind of the Something to make your clothes hang in a certain way. Something to make your clothes in a certain way. Yeah. Because that's what you've always had. Yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting to think of, actually, this brings to light that within a couple, if one of the partners does lose their breasts, yeah. it could be a shared grief. It isn't just one person's loss. Yeah. The fact that you would have picked this shows that actually they're, they're something that, that both of you have a relationship to, yeah. I suppose. And it's interesting, a friend of mine who recently redefined herself as um, they, them, and has very large breasts and has taken to binding them. And, you know, you think it's very interesting that kind of the, the physical manifestations and they are in a position between man and woman. So they have the breasts, but they bind them. It's kind of, I mean, you know, I'm luckily lucky at the moment. You've brought up this idea of my wife losing her breasts. Very, I have a very simple, beautiful relationship with them, and I don't. Have, I'm not forced to think about um, what would happen if they uh, if they went. What do you feel about your own breasts? My chest, my manly yeah, chest. Yeah, I mean, everyone has mammary glands, right? Yeah. Some humans I've, they're bigger than others. Um, I've always been kind of slightly triangular shaped, so I've got very kind of thin legs, and then I kind of go out to the shoulders, so my chest has always been very large. My, my dad used to say that um, when, he, when my dad was 15, he couldn't touch his hands behind, round the back behind his father, his arm, because his chest, I mean, he was a big man, but his chest was so large. And so, and Mima is also, uh, says that she, and it's always very hairy, my chest, and she says that she loves it. I've always quite, you know, I, I don't really think about it very much. I don't actually think about my body very much, the same as objects. I don't think about, I don't worry about my body too much. I kind of, you know, when I get my hair cut, I get it cut because it's too long. 
getting my eyes or whatever, and then... Your eyes. <laughs> well, not quite. I wish, I wish. How many years has it been since you've had hair in your eyes? You know what I mean? Like, it gets all itchy. And then every, the, the running joke is when I come into the office, when I've had my hair cut, everyone go, the people go, hmm, Henry, so what style did you ask for there? What was your brief on your haircut this time? Because <laughs> I literally just go in and say, can you cut my hair, please? <laughs> <laughs> I always think men's haircuts are really interesting, though, because, in fact, they, they change more than women's, in a way. Because women's, there's a long hair thing or not, but long hair of any of the decades in the last 50 years could be from any decade. But men's hair, you really do see very specific style choices. Over time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but is that because I, mean, I think there's definitely a, I think there are men who have haircuts and men who have hairstyles. And that's a very, very definite distinction. And maybe the haircuts that we get as men who have haircuts, we just get it cut to whatever the style of the day was. If you think about it, men's hair is much more homogenous in a particular time. Yeah. And maybe that's just because they were the people who got the styles and the rest of us just said, can you get my hair cut? And the, the hairdresser just did it <laughs> in a quiff or a short back and sides or whatever happened to be the style of the day. Right, thing number three. So thing number three is my heart rate monitor. This is important to me because all my life I have been quite physical. And then as you get older, forcing yourself when you get busy to do exercise and to get out and do it becomes increasingly hard. And I'm very goal-based. And about five years, six years ago now, I bought a, a heart rate monitor and a watch that measured how fast and far you ran. And I'm so kind of ridiculously autistically male in targets and um, being able to record and see what I've done that ever since I've kind of been incredibly physically active, I run two marathons, half marathons, 10Ks, literally just so I could see on the computer that I'd beaten the time from last time. And it's completely changed my life. I'm more actually emotionally than physically. I think that the emotional benefits that you get from exercise, the clarity uh, of your head is enormous, but I would not be able to do it without the heart rate monitor. And my last, I was trying to see my rest, see if I could get my resting heart rate under 40. And I got down to 42 and I would I'd lie in bed with her because you have to do it when you're rested and then in the morning. So I was so I was completely mad. I'd lie in bed, I'd go to bed at night with the heart monitor on and the watch so that when I woke up, I could just look over and look at the watch and see what the heart rate was. Because if I'd had to get up and put it on, that would have blown it. But it is one of those things where you realise you do have to set your own targets and these tools and these gadgets allow that relationship to exercise that isn't it isn't sport it is exercise if you were playing football once a week the measures would be completely different and that wouldn't be be out of your control yeah well I do think that choice is a very interesting thing I remember when I was um when I was about 13 I happened to be having lunch with a physicist with my family and he was taught we went for a walk after lunch and he was talking about free will and he said if you look back at Greek literature the verbs for free will literally do not exist. So if you do a textual analysis, he was arguing. You know, we know that they thought about fate and they thought about destiny, but his argument was they didn't believe in free will at all. It wasn't just like in the same way that we believe in fate. Some things are more, but you have will in between. They didn't believe in free will at all. If you look back at the text, there was no sign that they did. And I think that that idea about decisions, 
if I look at my, the kind of decisions I made in my life, you know, I was, did physics and philosophy, then I became a chef, then I was a journalist, then I sat Leon, um, then I started this business of street food markets. I'm beginning as I get older to get a sense that all of those decisions were pretty arbitrary, you know, in the same way that, the, you know, deciding to, having bought a Garmin and then suddenly becoming a runner is pretty arbitrary and that there was no strategy or at any given time in your life you create a structure that makes you make a certain decision and then you post-rationalise it and I'm increasingly convinced now that I'm going to get to 60 or 70 and suddenly go I took no control over my life at all there's kind of have a massive mental breakdown <laughs> because I look at the Garmin and think this was just something that happened to come along with a coincidence and I just went with it but there's a, you know, so maybe responding no to opportunity well. Well, is, thing, is an yeah. important skill because lots of people, an opportunity might come along and they, yeah. they don't take it. But do you respond to it? Is there how much of that is free will and how much of that is just going with the flow of things? Do you ever give things up then? Because that's less going with the flow of it if you have to make an active decision to not do something anymore, like leave a job. No, I'm very stubborn, so I tend to stick with things. And I, give, I, I only really ever give things up when I kind of hit capacity. And I have to sit down and say, look, I can't do all of this. And so, I mean, I think if I think about going from being a chef to being a journalist, I realised I wasn't dexterous enough to be a chef. So I wasn't good enough with my hands. My fine motor skills weren't good enough. And then when I left journalism to go to do business, I think I realised that what I found writing very, very hard and didn't enjoy it particularly. And so maybe journalism, and I, I wasn't doing as well as everyone else, so maybe journalism wasn't the thing. So I was forced to make a decision there and went and became a management consultant because I kind of, but that was again quite, I kind of thought, well, I'm not going to do that, I get into business, how do I get into business? And then I was out in Japan as a management consultant and I realised I really wasn't enjoying it very much and I was soon going to be earning the am an amount of money that it would be very difficult to say no to. So I kind of made the decision. But then the decision to open Leon was because John and I had been talking about it for a while when we've been working together in a car kind of idly. And so I rang him up from I was working in Tokyo and said, look, I'm going to go and do this. Didn't really sit down and think, what else should I do? And I went into Leon. Um, so, you know, each time the actual transition was forced not by thinking what is, the, what is going to be the most enjoyable, fulfilling course in my life. It was driven by, oh, this isn't working. Mm. Better try something else. I think some people are more strategic than that, aren't they? <laughs> people like Mark Zuckerberg, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, all great artists. Do you find that the, <laughs> it's? Do you find that it's the partnerships in those transitions there that were really helpful, like doing the on with John, like having a teammate? Yeah, I've always been a kind of. Uh, I've always, you know, with cooking, it was Brio Lube who asked me to do it. Uh, the Telegraph, the team was definitely a big part of the enjoyment. John obviously was absolutely critical. I don't. I think definitely I'm someone who works better with people and on my own. Um, Being part of a gang. Yeah, I got married very late, but um, for myself, I think I'm very, very good at being married. <laughs> you have to ask mine whether she thinks that's the case, but I definitely really, really enjoy being part of something. Right, what's your third item? Fourth. Fourth, hang on. Yeah. Yeah. Fourth. What's your fourth item? <laughs> My fourth item is this horrific thing here, which I imagine that people will choose a lot uh, on your show, which is my mobile phone. I hate it. I don't like 
phones. But that kind of, I guess it's part of that kind of pleasure-pain response that we all have. The phone feeds it in the most pernicious of ways. And I'm completely reliant on it, as a lot of people are. Uh, I have a very ambivalent relationship to it, as a lot of people do. You know, I can sit there, both me and my current business partner in London Union, Jonathan Downey, you know, we've now made a rule that we don't bring phones into meetings. Um, I actually, when I go on holiday now, I give my business partners and my assistant Mima's phone, and I leave a message on this saying, please get in touch with Liz. And I've, the last four holidays, I haven't had my phone at all. It's been absolutely incredible. As a result, it's got getting rid of that addiction. But if it's there, I, I, it, left to my own devices, I will be walking along the street like anyone else, head down, flicking through crap. But, you know, it's the great modern affliction, isn't it? I think anyone who doesn't have the phone, who doesn't choose their phone as one of their objects, I think you should actually, like the Bible in Desert Island Discs. They get that for free. I think you should get that for free. That's a good idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> because it is, you know... <laughs> that is both the Bible and the complete words of Shakespeare yeah. rolled into and one. And everything else, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's our life. I think that what, the other thing that's interesting about it, for me, as kind of having been a scientist, is when you think about the fact, when you move from one system to another or... Uh, and you take a bit of time to adjust to it, you realise that both... I use an iOS phone and, a, and an office on my PC, and you realise that literally physical parts of your brain have reconfigured, re have been programmed by Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. So there are literal parts of your brain that have aligned themselves to their operating system. The operating system extends into your head. And that is kind of physically, like your, your nodes and synapses have physically changed to be an extension of their operating systems. Right, and now your final item. So the final item is this carving board, which is a, what is it, two foot, foot and a half by over a foot, very large bezeled carving board with a gravy well uh, that was made for me by my grandmother, Mimi, my father's mother, who took up, uh, I think at the age of about 80, took up carpentry. And, you know, I, I can, you can, you can uh, just give a sense of the, um, move, move the feet, there go the feet, give a sense of the size of it, I'm just going to drop it on this table. <laughs> um, you know, it is a, it is a hefty, uh, slightly warped, um, thing but it's uh, it's got some thoughtful handles thoughtful handles at the yeah. back so you can pick it up and it is not only a, a memory of my grandmother I mean, she was brilliant the most kind of wonderful grandmother she'd do things like you know when we were very young kids she'd uh, make us coke floats whenever we went around she had a biscuit tin and then when we were older and went around with our friends she'd always um, well her husband Ronnie would make us a gin and tonic and then she, she had this silver box of cigarettes and she'd put them in the middle of the table and say I'm not going to offer cigarettes to my grandchildren but they're just there <laughs> um, so she was a brilliantly mischievous wonderful wonderful woman with an amazing smile so it's kind of partly a memory of her but also it's that thing of taking up carpentry as an 80 year old woman absolutely brilliant I mean they look at the size of this yeah. thing this is like she had all these kind of serious power tools in her shed I was going to say this is routed out <laughs> yeah routed this out is probably... <laughs> I know um, is there so, something that you think you quite fancy taking up in your 80s or 90s? Well, I do. I definitely think at the moment my life is so um, completely subsumed by work and children 
and there's not room for anything else. I love learning. I love learning new things. I probably wouldn't do this kind of hopeless with I said with my with my hands. It's fine motor skills, not good. But I definitely feel a lack that that I haven't you know compared with you know from when I hit probably thirty five that I haven't really learned anything new, and I feel that quite strongly. As you said at the start, it's you know food is something which you and your mother have connected over, and actually is at the heart of many families. And an item like this really represents that. It is the thing you bring to the table with the joint on and you all gather around. Yes, I mean, I think, again, I wouldn't, I could remember the meals, not when this was there. So, I mean, yeah, meals are something I remember very well from when we were in Devon and we used to, mum used to cook these amazing meals on our holiday and there were always lots of people around, people staying. They were very noisy, always lots of games being played, word games, things at the table. You know, in this house, this room has seen a lot of noise and fun all around this table through food. But it's really those events, it's the moments that I remember, not the physical things that came with them. Henry, thank you so much for sharing your things with me and everyone listening. Thank you very much. Thank you. just wanted to say a big thank you this is like a bonus thank you track or a thank you bonus track to everybody who's been listening tuning in subscribing reviewing even and getting in touch by twitter it's been such a thrill to know that people are listening and enjoying it the past two months worth of content has been really enjoyable to make but it's also quite tiring so i'm going to take a month or so off hopefully just four weeks actually anyway i'm going to take a little bit of time off record some new shows. I'm going to America to record some amazing interviews and the second series will start soon. If you've not already done so, please check out the previous episodes or subscribe so that the next instalments automatically pop into your earbox when they are released. There are some thrilling guests on the cards for series two. I'm really excited. As always, you can get in touch via the website or Twitter and see pictures of all the things selected by the guests at thethingsthatmakeus.com. Bye for now.